Welcome to New Cities Sermon Podcast. Join us as we root deep in God's Word, expecting to be encouraged, challenged, and formed to be more like Jesus together. Let's get into the scriptures now. We're continuing our series called Formed and Flourished, and the point of this series is to talk maybe almost a little bit about that quote I read about what does it look like for us to intentionally give us over to things that form us, much like going to the gym and lifting weights, and then how does God use that when we give ourselves over to the things he tells us to, to shape us so that we can flourish as human beings. And so Form to Flourish, Choosing the Path to Thrive is our series. Last week, we talked about choosing joy, and even deeper, choosing to enjoy Jesus. Like, what does it look like for you to set your affections on Jesus? And I was thinking about it this week, and one great question you can ask yourself is, how can I enjoy Jesus today? Or maybe someone else, maybe that's a great question, a great discussion question. How can you enjoy Jesus today? But today we're going to talk a little bit more in this series, but we're going to talk specifically about choosing to worship Jesus personally, choosing to worship Jesus personally. So let me pray, and then I'll read Romans 12, 1 through 2. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would shape us, that you would form us. We know that you have the best for us. You call us unto the abundant life. That life looks so much different than the messages of our culture tell us, yet you call us to the abundant life. And so we are here today because we want you to change us and shape us and transform us and make us more like you. You, the, the most alive human that ever walked the face of the earth. Because you were not just human, you were the God human. Fully God, fully man. So we, we trust you and we ask that you would shape us today. And all God's people said, amen. Let me read Romans 12, 1 through 2. And you're listening for the word worship. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. God's word. This past uh, Friday, Virginia and I celebrated 16 years of marriage. Yes, that's me. That is me. I know it's, I know it's unrecognizable. She kind of looks the same. I, I do not. Um, you know, it's funny when you, when you get married as, you know, when I got married, I had moved around to several different cities. I had lived in England. And so I was kind of used to like just doing my own thing, you know, just kind of, it's kind of like an alley cat in the sense that I would just go somewhere and figure it out as I went, you know? And it's funny when you get married because you have this new reference point for everything. Um, you know, it, it's no longer me, it's we. And there's this pull on your life now where you can't make decisions on your own. There's a gravity to everything you do because it affects another person. And now the two have become one. Uh, one author said it this way, I'm no longer myself by myself. I'm attached to another person. And and there's something about that marriage that becomes weightier than me just being by myself. 
And it forms everything that you do. Every decision you make, it, it, it changes you and you have to think about it. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, that, might, that image might help you understand a little bit more of what it's like to be a follower of Jesus. That when you, you follow him, you're, you're no longer yourself by yourself. There's something about your relationship with him that changes everything. It's a different reference point. Every decision becomes a different kind of decision. Uh, there's a pull on your life. There's a gravity that happens in your life as you're joined with him and following him. And, and that weight in your life is the weight of worship, right? You're, you're not living for yourself anymore. You're worshiping him. And so everything about your life changes because there's this gravitational pull towards him. Now, when we talk about the word worship, we tend to first think of a music style, right? Like we sang worship music and we sang it real good, right? Um, and so then when we start talking about worship, we get into these conversations about style of worship or expressiveness of worship. I can't help but think of some of the characters from the Muppets, Sam, Eagle, and Animal. Like some of y'all, this is you during worship over here. And some of you, it's, you're over here. This is you. I mean, we make a joyful noise to the Lord, we clap, but, um, you know, some people worship a little bit more internally, like Sam Eagle, and some people all over the place, like, like Animal. Uh, but here, when we talk about worship, it's not a music style, it's a lifestyle. It's both. Music style and worshiping together is the hour we spend together on Sunday evening, but there's a whole nother 167 hours in a week where we live out worship, the worship of Jesus. And I find that far too often our, our view of worship is like, it doesn't really get the gravity of walking with Jesus. Our view of worship is often far too light because worship is weighty. Just my, like my relationship with, with my wife, it wasn't something flippant that I could just enter into. Worship is weighty. Verse one, Paul starts by saying, present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God. Now, in the language here, the Jews who would have lived in Rome would have heard something as Paul wrote these words to them. That They would have heard the worship that happened at the temple as animals were sacrificed for the atonement of sin. That's what they would have thought of. God's righteousness must be satisfied for sin. His justice cannot be subsided. And so part of worship for Israel was that they would bring pure animals to the temple that the priests would sacrifice to atone for their sins. And as they watched this happen, what would go through their mind was someone has to die for me in order for atonement to be made. But what we're reminded in this verse is those sacrifices happened until Jesus Christ died on the cross for us. He was the final atonement. He was the pure lamb who offered himself to atone for our sins. Though he lived the life we should have lived, he chose to die the death we deserve to die so that by his death we might live. See, the weight of, of worship, worship is weighty because there's the weight of dying when it comes to worship. But Jesus did the dying so that we could live out worship. 
that we could live out worship. What does Paul say? It's a living sacrifice that we are. Through Jesus' resurrection, you and I come to new life. And though one day we will enter the grave, we will not stay there. But now, while we're alive, our job, our role as followers of Jesus is to live our lives in sacrificial service to the one who died for us. That we present our bodies as a living sacrifice. And that affects everything. Like, when are you not living your life? You're always living your life. So every moment is an opportunity to worship. So for us as Christians, worship isn't just one more thing. Worship is everything. Worship is everything. It touches every area. It touches your time and and your money and your energy. It it affects your private life and your work life and your home life and your sex life. It, It touches everything. And I love the fact that Paul uses the word bodies here. Because I think we can tend to say, well, I worship God with my heart, even though I don't always do what he says. But Paul doesn't say worship with your hearts. He says worship with your bodies. How are you living your life that's not in conformity to who Jesus is and what he's called you to? We're called to live everything out. Jesus didn't just love us with his heart. He loved us with his body. He gave his body as a sacrifice for you and for me. So we're called to present our bodies as a living sacrifice in worship. Worthship. Worthship. That's the ancient English word that worship comes from. Worth. So worship is about what's worthy. When you worship something, you worship them because they are worthy. There's a gravity to them. There's a weight to who they are. And so if Jesus is really who he said he is, as we prayed in Colossians 1, if he's the image of the invisible God, if he's the beginning and the end, if he's at creation and he's coming back, and if he's all those things and he's given himself to us in sacrifice, he deserves all worship because he's worthy. One question I find really challenging in light of that is if Jesus is worthy of all my worship, what have I stopped doing recently simply to worship Jesus? Like, what have I said no to out of worship for Jesus? Or what have I started doing out of worship for Jesus? Am I loving my enemies because of worship for Jesus? Am I saying no to what God says no to out of worship for Jesus? Am I being generous, not because I have to, because I get to out of worship for Jesus? What have you stopped doing out of worship for Jesus? What have you started doing? That, that, that we start to get the weight of worship as we ask ourselves those questions. It's weighty, right? Like, oh, you're getting into my stuff there. Um, but let's think about this just for a minute. The weight of worship actually gives fresh meaning to our lives. We live in a time where people are feeling like everything is meaningless. We have so much that we can have at the, at the you know, at the, at the snap of a finger. I could get on an app and I could have someone bring us all food in a moment, or I could get on an app and, you know, you can go date and you can like swipe right or swipe left, say yes or no. And so we live in this era era where like everything just feels meaningless because everything's cheap. But what this passage is telling us is that there's actually a new weight in our lives, a new meaningfulness when we understand the weight of worship. Because everything we do has meaning. It's not pointless. It's not meaningless. 
whether it has to do with our relationship or our identity or how we obey Jesus, everything is infused with fresh meaning. Paul even says this in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. We could go out to dinner afterwards altogether. It would be a big bill, wouldn't it? But we could do that, and we could do it out of worship to glorify who God is and what Jesus has done for us. So often, people look to the things that we can use to worship God, and rather they look to them in worship. And that's why life can feel so meaningless, because when we don't worship God, we tend to worship the stuff that he gives us. And that stuff cannot hold the meaning and the weight of worship. But when we worship God and we use the things he's given us and the people he's put in our lives, we use them as opportunities to worship him, all of a sudden, they have fresh meaning. All of a sudden, life is full of meaning. And and that is powerful in the areas that are mundane in life. Like if your marriage is stale, you can have fresh vibrancy by seeing, relating to your spouse as worship. If you're in an unfulfilling job, you can have fresh vigor and meaning in that job by seeing yourself as doing it for Jesus. We can go out to dinner and have fresh joy as we do it because we know we can do it to the king. We can do it for the king. I think as we think about our lives as worship in all those different areas, we, we feel the weight of worship. And I think we can tend to say, um, I don't want that kind of pressure. Like, I, I don't want to think about my life that way. Like, I like doing the things I want to do when I want to do them. I don't necessarily want to do them all for Jesus. And that puts a lot of pressure on me when you're asking me to rethink my life. I, th- I think we need to challenge ourselves there because what the verse says is, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy holy and pleasing to God. That is because God has called us out of the domain and darkness. He's called us out of sin. He's forgiven us. We're now called to live out of that new identity. We're now called to live differently than other people. We're called to be a little weird by the cultural standards because our reference point for life isn't the culture. Rather, it's what Jesus says and who he is. And sometimes as Christians, we're so afraid of coming off as legalistic that we don't call ourselves to a holy life. We tend to just adopt the the culture's categories about what worship is and what it isn't. But I love that Paul says holy and pleasing to God because I love that he didn't say appeasing to God. If he had said holy and appeasing to God, what that verse would have meant is if you worship God, you will atone for your sins and you will get God off your back. But he doesn't say that because of what he's already said. God's wrath has been satisfied. You have been atoned for. You are forgiven. Your identity is in Christ. He is your king. And you actually, by the way you live, can please him. You can bring him joy. You don't have to live that way out of the pressure to appease God. He has already been appeased by Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel. And see, as we begin to understand the, the, the weight of worship, we really get into understanding why we worship. And it's the weight of the gospel. 
that calls us to worship. In verse 1, what does Paul say? He says this, in view of the mercies of God. Why do we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice in view of the mercies of God? In view of the mercies of God. Well, what are the, what's mercy? Well, when we talk about grace in the Bible, grace is getting something that you do not deserve. It's like a blessing that you haven't earned. But mercy is not getting what you do deserve. So if, if you come up and like you punch me in the stomach, I could call the cops. But I don't do that because I'm merciful. But then I take you out to dinner, which is grace. You don't deserve it. And what Paul is saying here is as we see both the grace, but specifically the mercy of God, we understand the call into worship. Listen to how he says it in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit not working, now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and here's what we deserve, and were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. That's not good. That's basically saying from God's perspective, we are the bad guys. But it doesn't end there. Verse 4, but God, who is rich in what? Mercy. He's rich in mercy because of his great love that he has for us. He made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by what? Grace. He also raised us up with him, Jesus, and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. Did you catch that? But God, who is rich in mercy. And when you get this, when you, when you get that you deserve what you deserve because of your sin and rebellion against God, and you get that because of God's mercy, he put it on Jesus rather than you. That understanding changes everything. You walk around going, yeah, I am who I am. I'm a complete mess, and I was used to be worse. But what I deserve, for some reason, Jesus took what I deserve on the cross. And now I have a totally different way of viewing myself. I don't walk around beating myself up all the time. I don't walk around with guilt and shame because Jesus took my guilt on himself. Jesus took the shame of the cross for me so that I could be set free. And that's all because of the mercy of God. So our worship isn't something we initiate with God. It's rather something that we respond to what God's already done in the gospel. Our worship is responsive. It's not to get anything from God. It's to respond to what God has already done for us in view of God's mercy. And Paul says this response of giving your body as a living sacrifice to God is rather reasonable. In verse 7, he says, this is, or sorry, verse 1, this is your true worship. 
And that word true in the Greek, it, it, it has the word logic in it. So what the author is getting at is this is your logical, reasonable response. When someone gives themselves for you, when they die for you, you give yourself back to them. That's, that's just reasonable. We give all of ourselves to the God who gave us all of himself. Halfway worship doesn't make any sense. Like pseudo-worshiping God doesn't make sense because God fully gave himself for you when he sent his son to die on the cross. The hymn writer Isaac Watts said it this way in the famous hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. He said, when I survey the wondrous cross, when I see the, when I view the mercies of God, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. And the very last line of the hymn, he, he captures it so well. He says, love so amazing, so divine. There's no other love like this. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. To get this kind of love from God, it's only reasonable that I would give myself fully back to God. And that's why when we talk about worship, it is both singing on Sunday, but it's a lifestyle of giving yourself over to God. Worship is a lifestyle. And in verse 2, Paul explains what that lifestyle looks like. Worship is a lifestyle, first, of resistance. It's a lifestyle of resistance. He says, do not be conformed to this age. Some translations say, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. And what that is talking about is the culture that sets itself up in rebellion against God. It's, it's a decentering of God and it affects everything. It drives cultures and people groups. It infiltrates institutions and politics and economic systems. And there's always this draw for the Christian to go along with the sin and idolatry that are so infectious in our culture. In fact, the, the word do not be conformed, it's almost like a word you could use in fashion where it's like, hey, put this clothes on. And, and Paul's saying, don't put it on. Don't be conformed. Don't let the culture squeeze you into what it wants you to be because it will not fit you. Two ways I think we need to be careful about how the culture is squeezing us and how we must resist because it's really the air we breathe and we don't even know it. The first is I think we need to be more intentional about resisting radical individualism. Like I said during the announcements, our culture thrives on, it's not about we, it's about me, what I want. That's what matters most. So it's my truth, it's my identity. And in the midst of that, when you throw in Christian ethics into a culture that says me over we, uh, it's like, you know, a bomb went off. It's just so different to live for Jesus in the midst of radical individualism because you say, no, it's not about me, it's about him, then you, then me. And I think we have to be aware that every message we get is about me finding fulfillment from doing exactly what I want to do. And I've been down that road. There is no fulfillment. 
And Jesus is always calling us to worship him by giving ourselves away to others. So in this lifestyle of resistance so that we can worship him, I think we have to be careful of radical individualism. But then secondly, especially this year, in the midst of an election year, I think we have to be really careful about resisting the tribalism of the culture war that we live in. Not only does our culture get me wrong, but we also get how we do we wrong. One way to examine this and explore this would be, um, you know, what tribe do you think of yourself in? When it comes to the politics and when it comes to social issues, what tribe do you think of yourself in? Who do you listen to online that you're like, yeah, they got it, they get it? Here's how you identify uh, if you've been conformed by that tribe. Whatever your tribe is, can you identify what about your tribe you need to resist? If you go, well, nothing, then you've already been conformed. You've already been conformed. What about my tribe do I need to resist in order to worship Jesus? There are a lot, I listen to a lot of political commentators. I listen very broadly because I want to know what's out there. And I know there's so many people that are so influential. But listen, listen think about this for a minute. Whether you f- like the voice of like Ben Shapiro on the right or Ibram X. Kendi on the left, or Bill Maher kind of in the center, I want you to wrestle with this. None of those people are believers. None of those people worship Jesus. They might have good things to say, but none of them have the reference point that you have for all of life. And what does it look like for you to resist being sucked up in a culture war where you're trained to see someone else as an enemy. Often I find that people join sides with someone, not because they agree with their vision for things, but rather they agree the fact that we disagree with the same people. You know, so it's not like we have a vision for how things are. We just believe those guys are wrong, and you do too, so you're on my team. Pastor Rich Villados says that we have to be careful about being trapped in the culture wars. And he says, here's some litmus tests for you. If you carry a God with us, but not with them impulse, like you're the one who really gets God, everybody else doesn't. If you no longer see image bearers to be engaged on the other side, but rather threats to be eliminated. If you believe that you are fighting for truth so your hatred is justified. If you believe that political power is necessary to make the most of the gospel, or if fear is the primary lens through which you see the world, if you answer yes to those, you need to do some thinking because it's possible you have been trapped in the culture war. You have been conformed. And rather than living a lifestyle of worship, you have adopted the mantra of your tribe. And most of the stuff we learn online, what's behind that is an algorithm that's meant to give you things that you will respond to. And so it's possible that you're getting information and you like the people you like because the algorithm behind it knows you will react to what you see 
and then someone will make some money off your click. So think about that as you engage. As we go into this election year, my, my greatest fear for you is that you will look to a candidate as your savior and redeemer. This person will save us from the other side. And friends, if we have, if we, if we have that motivation, whoever you vote for, we have already been conformed. We're called to something different. We're called to think differently. We're called to be differently. We're called not to conform to the way the culture does things, but rather to live a lifestyle of transformation, to be different. Paul continues, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I love the way he uses that word, be transformed, because the transformation is God's initiative on us, yet we're called to participate with him. He's not saying transform yourself, and he's not saying God's doing all the work. He says God does this. Now get on board with what he's doing. Be transformed, and here's how you do it. The renewal of your mind. That word transform is where we get the English word metamorphosis. What a butterfly goes through, right? And we know the passage in 2 Corinthians, but this is specifically talking about something that happens in our head. I know worship, we tend to think of it as like an emotional experience, right? When we sing on Sundays, and it is. Like we engage our emotions. But one thing we have to learn about worship is it's, it's something that engages the way we think. Worship is very cognitive. It's a transformation process that happens in the way I think about things. As I learn to think God thoughts about all things. How does that happen? Well, I mean, it's the basic stuff. It's like the power of the Holy Spirit in us as we gauge, engage God's word, which is a gift from the Holy Spirit himself, as we're rooted in the word, as we're asking the spirit to help us, as we're doing that together, we're coming back to the word, we're changing our thinking, we're studying Jude together, the men are talking about integrity and change. As we do those things, we're being transformed by the renewal of our mind. But, but it has to include this. Like when we engage God, it has to include the scriptures of God. And one thing that we, one error we can make is as we think about worship, we tend to think about it as this emotional experience with the Holy Spirit, which it is, but it's so much more. It's a cognitive engaging with what the Spirit has said through the scriptures. It's both. John Frame says it this way, to hear the word of God is to meet with God himself. Where God is, the word is, we should not seek to have an experience with God which bypasses or transcends his word, right? This is what tells us how to think how God thinks about things. This is what leads us to a lifestyle of both resistance and transformation, which is worship. And here's a beautiful thing. As we engage that process, as we give ourselves over to a lifestyle of worship, it actually completely changes us. It forms us in a way that we live in a lifestyle of flourishing. The very last thing Paul says as the worship team comes back up, he says that you may discern what is the good, 
pleasing and perfect will of God. That verb discern or that word discern has the context of like testing. Like come try this on. Come test it out. Worship God. Do his will. See what happens. As you form yourself by God's will, your life will change and flourish in new ways. Because as you test it out, you will find that there's nothing greater, there's nothing weightier that you can give your life to than to God and what he calls us to do. He says that the will of God is good. And by good, it's like, it's not just like good. It's like, it's morally beautiful. Everything that he asks us to do in worship. It's pleasing. It it brings him and it brings us satisfaction and joy. And it's perfect. It cannot be added to. See, when we worship God and we form ourselves to worship him, we actually flourish. We flourish. We come to understand who he is and what he's doing in our life. And and the weightiest thing happens to you. Like, as you do God's will in worship, it does something to you. It changes you over time. And it produces this deep satisfaction with life. Not because life always goes your way, but because you know whatever way life goes, you're giving yourself over to God in worship. So as we think about this year, I want to challenge you. Choose personal worship. Think about your life and what doesn't align with what God says and ask him for help anew. Say, God, I am a living sacrifice. I want to live holy and pleasing to you. I'm going to say no to the world. I'm going to say yes to you. Renew my mind so that I think your thoughts, so that I can live a life pleasing to you. Let's choose to worship him together. Amen? Let me pray. Thank you for joining with us as we rooted deep in God's word. If you found this sermon encouraging, share it with a friend. You can learn more about New City by going to newcityhh.com or checking us out on social media by searching New City HH. We'll see you next week. Thank you.